when you look at a mirror, what do you see? Help me out here. What do you see? Yourself. Huh? Dirt. Really? Maybe have a look in the mirror after your shower. And when, when you look in a mirror, you see exactly things the way they are. Now what you understand of those things and the way you perceive those things is a different matter. Whether you like what you see is a different matter. But what you see in the mirror is a true reflection. Provided that mirror is perfectly flat, clean, and free from imperfection. You go to a carnival mirror and you don't see what is a true reflection. You see a distortion. And so when you look in a mirror, you provided that it's clean and straight and all the rest, you see what is true. You see a true reflection. Uh, in the same way, when you look at a child, often you will see similarities with their parents. And for us who are parents, we often don't like what we see because they confront us with the reality of our brokenness and our weaknesses. And children are likewise ashamed because they don't want to admit that they are like their parents. But often you will see similarities between a parent and a child. And as we come to this second half of Leviticus, this is what we see. We see a reflection. A reflection of what the children of God should be like as the children of God. They should be like a mirror, a reflection of who He is. And if you've been following the readings, uh, this week looked at chapters 17 to 20. And as we get into this second half, we begin to see what does it mean for the people of God to be His people. Let's just kind of backtrack a little bit. There's a few of us who are new. Leviticus is really about what? For those of you who have been along, what is Leviticus about? Oh, come on. God wanting relationship with His people. What do we typically read when we come to Leviticus or think of Leviticus though? A list of laws. But if you've been with us for the first half of Leviticus, there are no laws there. right? It's not about how to live. It's not do this, do that. It's how do you be right with God? So we have these offerings, these sacrifices, and these things that you do. And yes, they are rituals. But at the heart of them, it's about how you are made right with God. Right? God is holy. I'm putting you to the test now. God is holy, which means He is what? He's set apart. He is unlike the things of this world. He is unique. And so our relationship with Him and His relationship with us demands that we are holy. Right, and so the first half of Leviticus is concerned about making people holy, being able to enter into the presence of God. And we remark throughout the whole process that God's actually trying to make it easy for people to come into relationship with Him, not make it hard. It's hard because we don't understand what's going on. But when we begin to understand what God's doing, He's trying to make it easy 
for people to come into relationship with him. And last week, uh, we capped it off with the Day of Atonement. The day when everything is reset. The relationship that God has with his people. The relationship that people have with one another. The relationship that people have with this world. is completely reset. Everything's cleansed. Everything's made new. It's reset. Once a year. It would all be made new on the Day of Atonement. And so now we get to chapters 17 to 20. And now we get into the, this is how you live. Right? But remember, the first half sets the tone. We have a holy God who wants relationship with people, and he makes a way for them. Right? That's the context. And as we've been even reading just through chapter 19, let alone the rest of it, what's the one thing that gets repeated over and over and over again? Did you pick it up? Anyone? I am the Lord. And in other parts it says, I am the Lord, your God, who saved you out of Egypt. Right? Everything leading up to what we have now in the second half of uh, Leviticus is, I am the Lord, your God, who has saved you out of Egypt. That's what starts Leviticus. That is the start of Leviticus. You've got Genesis, Exodus. Exodus is the whole story of God redeeming and saving a people for himself. And so when we come to the second half of Leviticus, you can't ignore that stuff. right? You can't just suddenly throw it out and go, oh, he's God and I have to obey him. That, you're missing the point. The point is not that God is holy and we obey him. No, it's... God is holy and he has saved and redeemed a people for himself and he has made a way for them to be holy like he is. Therefore, we open in chapter uh, chapter 19, be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Be holy, be set apart, be unique, be different from this world because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Right? This is, and we have to remember that when we read those words, it encapsulates everything that God has done for his people. And it's out of that that then people respond. Right? We have to remember that. And I, I will stress this over and over again. Because once you take that out of the picture... What you are left is, is the silly title in some of our Bibles of various laws. Like, you read through Leviticus and these Bible headings do not help. Because they do not encapsulate that this is a God who has a desire to have relationship with people. And that's why we live this way. Right? The moment you take that relationship with God and what he has done out of the picture you are left with a series of laws that no one can keep. Does that make sense? Okay. So over and over again, throughout Leviticus and throughout Scripture, God says, I am the Lord your God. And it's not meant to say that God is out of reach and that He's high and mighty and He is all of those things. But He's also the God who has come down to save His people and redeem them. And you can't forget that. Now let's quickly just run through uh, chapters 17 to 20 uh, for those of you who have read it. Uh, We begin with uh, these uh, 
discussions about sacrifices. And at this particular time, we have to remember, the Israelites are still out in the wilderness. right? They're still in their little camp, uh, despite the fact that there's almost 100,000 of them. They're in a camp. And so because they're in this camp, all the sacrifices would have to be brought to the tent of meeting, to the tabernacle, which was at the center of the camp. So any meat, any sacrifices that were made were brought to the temple. Okay, That's what chapter 17 is really about. Um, and what does that show us? Well, if you read through it, the whole point of the sacrifices, if you remember, was so that the priest would get their share. And so it also provided a place that people could come to and ensure that they would be right with God. Now, when the people get to the promised land later on, this restriction is lifted. They can actually kill animals out in the fields anywhere they like. But as long as they're in this camp, the, the ex- expectation is that they will bring their sacrifices to the tent. And they would share, not, it's not selfish, it, they would share that with other people. And we talked about sacrifices, so I'm not going to get into it. But what this shows us is here we have a God who provides. He provides for the priest, because the priest has no access to any sort of income. Right? They, they don't have animals of their own. They don't have food that they can gather. Their, their sole purpose is to serve the people. And so these sacrifices provide them an income. And so here we have a God who provides. Then you get to the second half of that and uh, it's this talk about blood, not eating blood and what you do with blood. And again, blood represents what? Life. Here we have a God who treasures life. And before, earlier, we prayed about not only the gospel that impacts people and culture, society, but creation. Here we have a God that... that values life and the life of an animal is important. And the shedding of blood was not to be taken lightly. Right here is a God that values life, not just human life, but animal life. Chapter 18, we have this list of uh, sexual relationships. And here, I, I want to just make a side comment. Because people blow this out of the water completely. For about, I think, 20 verses, it uh, talks about um, inappropriate sexual relationships with family members. Then it has one line, one line, barely a verse, where it talks about homosexual relationships. Now, why do I point that out? Because people blow it way out of proportion. Yes, it is a big deal for God, and we'll talk about that fully another time. But in the context of what is going on here, God is more concerned about any relationship, not one type of relationship. And as a church, and particularly for Christians, here's something we need to pay attention to. If we genuinely want to give a genuine, loving, gracious response to the broken relationships, broken sexual relationships of our world, we can't hone in on one. We need to deal with a whole lot of them. 
And so issues of domestic violence, issues of sexual identity and sexual attraction, and all of these things need to be dealt with equity. That means that they need to be treated fairly and equally. Because you can't just hone in on sexual identity, sexual attraction, if you're not willing to deal with the issues of domestic violence, divorce, and pornography, and sexual immorality with everyone else. You can't do that. Because then you would be impartial. Sorry, you would be partial, not impartial. You would be treating people unfairly. You would be treating people ungraciously. Because here's the thing. When you put everyone in the room together, at some point, our sexual identity, our sexual attraction, our view of sexuality and all the rest is flawed in some way. And it is not enough to up, just put up the Christian ideal of marriage and go, this is what it looks like. No, there's brokenness there too. And we need to think clearly, if we're genuinely going to be concerned for our world and this issue of sexuality across the board, we can't pick and choose the things that we hammer on about. Now, the world might do that, and that's what they're doing, but as the church and as Christians, we can't. The same veracity, the same emphasis that we want to put on certain issues, we have to put on others. You want to talk about sexual identity and sexual attraction, you need to talk about pornography. You want to talk about broken marriages, you need to talk about divorces in the church. You you can't isolate things on their own. And I think Leviticus here helps us do that. Because what is it saying, essentially? That at the heart of it, there is a brokenness that affects all of us. Now, whether we struggle with that or not is a different matter. But it affects our society as a whole. Now, that's a bigger issue that uh, we don't have time to get into. But I do want to touch on that. Because at the heart of what we see here is... Be holy, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. And that affects all relationships, not just one type of relationship, all relationships. It affects our marriages, it affects our relationships at school, at work, it affects our sexuality, it affects everything. And here's the thing, the standard is not what we say, the standard is what God says. And as hard as a time that we might have with that, and that's not, that's with all of this stuff. God says, this is what it looks like to be holy. But again, right, you, you, we fall into the danger of going, God is holy, you must be like that. Because if you take out the missing piece, that becomes extremely damaging and extremely hurtful. And what's that missing piece? relationship with God. See, I I said this a couple of weeks ago. But as a church, our doors are open to anyone who walks in them. But the moment that a person enters into a relationship with God, that changes. Because why? This is why. Be holy. 
Because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Right? Because of that relationship with God, things change. But you can't demand those things of people who do not have a relationship with God. You can't expect people who don't have a relationship with God to understand what His holiness is all about. You can't expect them to understand, here is a God who desires relationship and goes so far to save and redeem them. If they don't have that, you can't expect them to live holy lives. Now the flip side, and this is the hard thing that I have to do, is if you do have a relationship with God, God says, be holy. But it's because of this relationship, right? Uh, we'll dig into uh, verse 19 a little bit more in a moment. Uh, but verse tw- uh, chapter 20. Chapter 20 is essentially a, a, a list of punishments for everything in chapters 17 to 19. What does that tell us about God? It tells us that He's just. It tells, him, tells us that he's righteous. He doesn't just take these things lightly. And he is fair. And we've talked about that a little bit as well. So here we have different aspects of God being demonstrated to us through these chapters of Leviticus. Now chapter 19 speaks particularly, I think if you want to sum it all up, I think it speaks particularly of God's love for people. Right, if you read through them, right, the very first one, respect your mother and your father. Observing the Sabbath. Don't make idols, that's your relationship with God. Okay? Talks about sacrifices, we've touched on that. Right? And then you get verse nine. Don't reap the harvest. Don't completely reap your field. Why? So that the poor and the foreigner can have food. The command is there so that others are being thought of. Right? Don't steal. Well, who do you steal from? Someone else. Don't lie. You have to lie to someone else. Don't deceive one another. Don't swear falsely. Because when you do, you're accusing someone or don't defraud your neighbor. Don't hold back wages of a hired man. Don't curse the deaf or putting a stumbling block in front of the blind. You want to... You wanna, uh, theology of disability, it starts there. Think about them and care for them. Right? Don't lie about people. Don't pervert justice. Don't slander them. Don't endanger someone else's life. Don't hate. Rebuke people so you don't share in guilt. Don't seek revenge. Don't bear a grudge. All these things are about people. Why? Because here we have a God that loves people. And God's people are called to be holy, to be like Him, to be a mirror, to be a reflection of who He is. And so God's people need to love others. Then you get into the second half of chapter 19, and it gets really interesting. Don't make different kinds of animals. Don't plant your fields with two kinds of seeds. Don't wear clothes with two kinds of materials. Uh, we have this problematic verse about slave girls. And yes, culturally, they're possessions. Note, though, they're not to be treated unfairly. 
they're still being treated with dignity, even in the context of that time. So yes, it's uncomfortable to us, but there is still dignity and integrity in what God demands of even there. Right? Plant, when you plant a tree, don't eat it for five years. Go talk to a farmer about that one. They can explain that a lot better than I can. But, here's the thing. God cares about his creation. Now, here's the interesting thing in that. In the fifth year, you may eat its fruit. In this way, your harvest will be increased. Well, let's just think about that logically really quickly. If you have a tree that can last for five years without you touching it, that's a good tree. That's the point. The point is that you're not going to eat a tree for a year and then it dies. That's a bad tree. You don't want bad fruit. God is still careful and cares about the details, even in his creation. Right? Don't eat me with blood in it. Don't practice divination or sorcery. And here we get into things where God is saying, do you trust me? Right? We, we start this chapter with, I am the God who loves you, so love others. I am the God who is giving you things, so look after them. But then you have all these other things that come back to, do you trust God with life? Right? Don't practice divination or sorcery. Do you trust me to lead and guide you in life? Don't cut the hair at the sides of your head or clip the edges of your beard. Let's talk about that another time. It's too much detail. Don't cut your bodies for the dead or put tattoo marks on yourselves. Once the dead are dead, there's nothing you can do for them. They have no power. That's a spirituality issue. Again, is it do you trust God? Don't degrade your daughter by making her a prostitute. People would do that to earn favor with God and with other people. God says don't do it. Trust me. Observe my Sabbath and have reverence for my sanctuary. We talked about the Sabbath. The Sabbath is about trust. It's about trusting that God will provide when you take that time off. Don't turn to mediums or seek out spiritualists. Trust me. And then at the end, rise in the presence of the age, show respect for the elderly, revere your God. When an alien lives with you in your land, do not ill-treat him. And again, God brings it all the way back. Be like me and love people. Treat them justly. There's no partiality. Now here's the problem. Israel messes this up. And we mess this up still. Because if you read some of those things, I'm pretty sure you'd be like, ah, yeah, that's me. But at the heart of it is what? Be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. That, that is the big thing that we need to walk away with in all of this. Because you can get caught up in the details. Right? You can get caught up in the details. But if you get caught up in the details, you completely miss the point. The point is that God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Well, I don't know about you, but I wasn't in Egypt, so I have no idea what he's talking about. But I have lived life in brokenness, in weakness, in failure, in sin. And this God, and I hope this is true for many of you, didn't bring me out of Egypt, out of physical slavery. 
but brought me out of spiritual slavery, out of bondage to sin. And he does that through the sacrifice and the offering of his son, the Lord Jesus. Right? We, we talked about the Day of Atonement last week. The day where God would completely reset the agenda. Relationship with him, relationship with people, and relationship with this world. But that was an annual event. That was something that had to be done every year. God knew that wouldn't work. And he planned right from the beginning to send Jesus. Jesus, the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate atonement who would reset things once and for all. And for us today, that's our relationship with God. Because the relationship with God for the Israelites was built around these offerings and sacrifices. That is how they were made right. We don't do that anymore. Instead, we have one sacrifice, Jesus, who dies on the cross, who rises from the dead, and that sacrifice is done. And that is our relationship. That is the door to our relationship with God. No more blood is being spilt because of that. And because of that, because of what Jesus has done, when we come to Him, we are adopted as the children of God. And because we are children of God, we are to be like God, to be a mirror for God, a reflection of who He is. And, and Peter picks this up. In 1 Peter 2, he reminds, of, reminds us of these words, Be holy because I am holy. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Why? To be a blessing to the world. Right? The things that we've just read in chapter 19 here are all about being a blessing to people, not a curse to them. To be a blessing. To love them as Jesus loves them. Why? Because God is holy. He is different from this world. He doesn't love the same way that this world does. And you might be forgiven for looking at the world and going, they're loving better than we do. And maybe that should challenge us a little bit. But here's the thing, their love comes with conditions. The love of the world comes with conditions. You need to be like this. You have to agree on this. You have to live this way. That's what the world says. I will love you so long as you do this. But here is a God who says, no, I will love you because I am holy. Because I am unlike the world. I am set apart. I am unique. I am different from the world. So I will love you. And I will send my son, Jesus, to die on the cross for you so that you might be a blessing. That you might be holy like I am holy that you might be set apart, that you might love differently, that you might be different from this world. And what does Jesus say in John 13? He says, the world will know Him by the way that you love one another. How is the world going to know what the love of God looks like? By the way that you love others. 
What does that look like? Well, in these chapters, we see a, a love that provides for others. It's a generous love that provides materially for those in need. Right? This love values life. Right? And that life is not just people, but creation. Right? The love of God impacts the way that we love our world. It impacts our relationships. And, and here's the thing. The love of God is self-fulfilling. Did you get that? The love of God is self-fulfilling. How do we see that? We see that in the Trinity. We have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the three in one so love each other that they need nothing else. We need to understand that. It's a problem with why I have a problem with one of the songs that says that God didn't want heaven without us. He doesn't need us. Let's be clear about that. Now, he wants us to be in relationship with him. He doesn't need us, though. The love of God is self-fulfilling. It doesn't need external things to contribute to that. But here's the thing. The love of God is also outward-looking. And what does the result of that look like? It's Genesis 1. The love of God results in God creating what He loves. Sit on that for a moment. The love of God creates what it loves. That's not me, by the way. That's Martin Luther. God creates out of love the things that He loves. He doesn't need us. To fulfill his love. That's self-fulfilling. But he in himself creates so that he can demonstrate that love. And so when we understand the love of God, that love is not insular. That love is not inward looking. It's outward looking. And here's the thing about a healthy marriage. It looks out, not in. Why do we have broken relationships? It's not because they look out. It's because they look in. They look in and what do they see? They see brokenness. They see hurt. They see pain. And as, if you keep doing that, that just keeps building. And it breaks. At some point it will break. Which is why marriage is not the answer for love. The answer for love is not marriage and relationships that look inward. The answer to love is to look out. Which is why it's dangerous when you start putting marriage on a pedestal. Right? When you start elevating certain relationships as the goal of love, you've missed the point. Because love is meant to be self-fulfilling. The love of God is meant to be self-fulfilling. How? Because it is so content within itself that it looks out to others. And that's what you read here in Leviticus. It is a God that is so fulfilled and content in Himself that He says to people, think about others. But you look at any other system of faith, 
or way of life or philosophy. And it says, do this and feed in. And as much as it might look like it's looking outward, it's only looking to protect its own interests. And that is why that the church should be able to open the doors to anyone who walks into it. Because it is so content and so fulfilled within itself that it has no fear of who walks in. That is the true power of love. You want love that conquers all things? It is a love that looks out. It is a love that reflects God who is holy, set apart, unique, and like nothing this world has to offer. That is love. A love that is sacrificial, unconditional, that gives of itself. Right? It gives of itself. And we see that most in the Lord Jesus, who is given by God so that people might be restored and redeemed into relationship with Him. Right? This is what Leviticus is about. It's God wanting relationship with people, people that He loves. And He wants His people to be the same. But see, this is the thing. And none of what we read here will make any sense if we don't have this relationship with Him. Right? The only way that we can love the way that God does is to be completely centered and grounded in Jesus. To know Him not simply know about Him, but to know Him in such a way that we are so content, self-fulfilled because of Him that we no longer think about ourselves. Right, I was reminded yesterday, and this is something that I've said before, but humility is not thinking about yourself less. It's about thinking about others. Sorry, it's not about thinking less of yourself. It's about thinking about yourself less. What does that mean? It means that you're so concerned about other people that you don't even think about yourself. And that is the love of God. But that has to be at the heart of it. Because see, again and again, we can't call people to live this Christian life, to be holy if they don't know Jesus. And this is the challenge for you. Do you know Jesus? Do you really know Him? Because if you do, He says, be holy because I am holy. Love like I do, live like I do, think like I do, walk like I do, be who I am, because I am holy. But that comes out of relationship. But if you try and be holy without knowing Jesus and having relationship with Him, all you're doing is laws, rituals, religion. There's no life in that. You want life, you need Jesus. You can't 
live a certain way and expect the results if you don't have Jesus. Because, see, this is the thing. We're broken. You and I, we're broken. And our love, as well-intentioned as it is, is broken. And it is not self-fulfilling. For some of you, all you need to do is, in, is look in the mirror and that answers that question. You are not content with what you see in that mirror. When you look in that mirror, the love of God should so overwhelm you that all you see is what Jesus has done for you. That you are so cleansed and perfected and made right with God that it doesn't actually matter what you see. You might just see that a hair's out of place and you need to comb it and then you walk away. That's how the love of God works. That is how the relationship with Jesus works. It fills you with such contentment and fulfillment that whenever you think of yourself, whenever you see yourself, you're like, oh, oh well, I better go. I've got other things to do. A life that is so centered around what you see and what you want people to see is not a life that is content and fulfilled and you cannot love others as well-intentioned as you try. Because at some point, it will break. Because at some point, you will be faced with your brokenness. I have someone that is an amazing person who gives so much of themselves to, uh, to people in need, people in difficult circumstances. But I recently discovered their breaking point. It was their family. They couldn't, they had nothing for their family. As much as they tried. They cared for all these other people, but they had nothing for their family. And that hurts, that sucks. And it brings to us this problem of if we want to help people, what we have all these issues, what do we do? See, as long as you're left with your humanity, you can't do anything. But see, with Jesus, He wipes all that clean. He takes all that away. He overshadows it with His love. And so that when we read through things like Leviticus, they're not laws, they're not regulations. They're simply who God is. It's simply who Jesus is. Right? Jesus respects his mother and his father. Go, go read the wedding at Cana. He's the one who observes the Sabbath. He can rest in God's goodness because he knows he has all that he needs. There's no need to turn to idols or spiritualists or star charts or I don't even know what to call them any. What do you what are they called? Zodiacs. Things that you read on the news, on websites that tell you what your week's gonna be like and who you should marry and all that. You don't need that stuff. Because God cares for you. And he's gonna look after you. 
Right? You can love other people despite what they might do to you. You can be honest and truthful. Seems like a virtue that's being lost in our world. You can do all these things that we read, not because they're laws and regulations and we have to obey them so that we somehow gain favor and are made right with God. Well, it's the other way around. It's because we are made right with God. It's because we know that Jesus has paid the ultimate price that we can go, how can I love others? How can I be holy? Because God is holy. And that's what this second half of Leviticus is all about. It's not about rules and laws that we need to follow. No, it's about who God is. The first half is about how God makes us like Him, how He makes us right with Him. But the second half of it is how we can be like Him and what it looks like. See, we're called to be a mirror, a reflection of who God is. And what is that? Well, God reveals Himself multiple ways through Scripture. But one of those ways is when He appears to Moses and He says, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of their parents to the third and fourth generation. This is who God is. He's compassionate, he's gracious, he's slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands. I don't know about you, but that sounds like a big task. Forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin, and yet he is just and righteous. He doesn't leave the guilty unpunished. Right? This is who God is. But again, because, not because of simply the fact that he is God, but because that he enters into our world and sends us Jesus and restores us into relationship with him. We seek to be like this. If you get that order wrong, it's going to hurt a lot. It's going to be really hard work. But you get that right, you get that the right, right way around. You, you understand that our lives when we come to Jesus, are redeemed and restored by Him. And this other stuff, that becomes second nature. It's what we grow into as children. Just as children learn from their parents, we learn from our Father in Heaven. And we are called to be holy because He is holy. And that's not some grand idea that we can't reach. God makes it accessible to us in Jesus so that we can be holy. We can be set apart. We can be unique. We can be different from the world. Radically different from the world. And love like they don't can never dream of because God is holy and he calls us to be holy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you We thank you for who you are. You are the Lord, gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, 
maintaining love to thousands, generation after generation, forgiving multitudes of sin. And you, you are just and holy and righteous and you do not leave the guilty unpunished. We thank you that you are all these things and so much more. Help us to understand what it is to be holy, to be like you, and to live like you. Help us to know how we can do that. Help us to love others as you love us. And Father, help us each day to grow as children, to know your love, and to show that to your world. And for those of us who may not be certain of our relationship with you, of our standing in Jesus, Holy Spirit, I ask that you open eyes and hearts to see. Open them to see who you truly are, not merely in these words, but in the person of the Lord Jesus, who gave himself up for us. And so we ask these things now in Jesus' name.